Hello guys, welcome to the first episode of the Green Tea Podcast. This is your host, Crazy Grace. And Emma. So we have created the Green Tea Podcast to showcase compelling stories from guests across all walks of life, spanning from overcoming challenges to achieving celestial successes, and to engage with thought-provoking and enlightened seekers. So we are two curious individuals, and we are here to give you uplifting tea, the green tea, not the gossip tea. Well, maybe a little bit. (laughs) So um, quick introduction. My name is Grazy Grace. I was a K-pop singer. I debuted in 2016. I'm an influencer. You guys seen me on YouTube, true crime and everything. Yeah, and I'm Emma. I am a former dancer turned psychological astrologer, speaker, and life coach. I founded the holistic wellness company Ebb and Flow Dynamics and am focused on facilitating workshops that focus on leveraging astrology as a tool. And I provide blended astrology and natal chart readings, uh, coaching sessions at private events for individual clients globally. So today we have our very first guest. So excited to introduce you guys to Mr. Heath Bennett. He's a Korean American business mogul, entrepreneur, and he started his widely successful business in South Korea, Itaewon, known as a foreigner's town in Seoul. Now he is a renowned businessman in America with over 10 plus businesses. He runs in various fields from international trading, entertainment, nightlife, casino. He was a former CEO of Paradise City. Yes, the one you've seen on Singles Inferno on Netflix. So Heath will be talking a little bit about his experiences as a business mogul in Korea versus America, including his journey from struggles to riches and unveiling some darker stories from Korean nightlife. He'll also impart some invaluable insight for any of those aspiring investors or entrepreneurs so what lessons can we glean from his journey let's find out hello mr he hi hello ladies how are you doing good how are you i'm maintaining (laughs) (laughs) all right so i guess to start off the audience needs to know who you are because you are a silent ninja in this business Mm. world (laughs) i was in the uh u.s military until 2008 and then after that, I just got into uh, the nightlife business by accident. I had a, a buddy of mine had a club in um, an area called Apkujang in, in Seoul, and he asked me to help him out with a party one night. I and I was like, and I was early twenties at the time. I don't remember exactly how old I was when that my first party was, but he just wanted me to bring my friends, and he said I could drink and party for free all night if I brought my friends. I thought that was a great deal you know, being a young kid with like no money. And I, you know, brought like hundreds of people on my first party. I think it was like around like two or 300 people. And then, and he realized like, Hey, like, what are you doing after the military? Like you're, you're a natural at this. Like you should get paid to bring people. And I thought that was actually like an amazing business idea at the time, because back then, like Korea didn't really have promoters. Mm. They had like MDs for all the nightclubs like marketing directors but they didn't really have any promotion teams or anything so i definitely um thought i saw the an opportunity there so that's why i started next site and started throwing parties wow so that is your first ever business working experience just starting off as like an amateur marketer it started off like uh i mean i i threw a my first party at like a little local bar i um they said that they'd just give me profit sharing if I brought some friends. And I just remembered what my grandpa taught me when I was a little kid that, you know, if you're going to get into business someday, you should practice self-fulfilled prophecy. So the first party I threw, I told everybody I was going to be the biggest promoter in Korea someday and probably Asia. It was only like 50 people that showed up to that event the first time. And I wouldn't say it was a failure because after that, a few hundred people came to my next event two weeks later, and then it just kept growing from there. Eventually, I ended up uh, eventually throwing major club parties, bringing thousands of people every week. Uh, I started doing concerts and festivals. The first concert I did was the Pussycat Dolls, then Black, you know, then Black Eyed Peas, Boys to Men. We brought Boys to Men twice, actually. Yeah, I did end up actually being the biggest promoter in Korea. I'm close to Heath. I know him, but Emma might be the first time. But uh, people called you the king of Itaewon. And for you guys don't know, Itaewon is a foreign town in Seoul, South Korea. And there's a lot of military people there, a lot of, you know, people from all walks of path of life. It's a widely known place with popular clubs and restaurants 
What was your first stepping stone in Korea to become the king of Itaewon? I focused most of my attention in the Hongdae and uh, Gangnam area in Korea. I remember when I was a U.S. soldier back in 2001, my first duty station was in Korea. And, you know, sometimes when we go to Seoul, like all the military and foreigners and expats would go, would party, I mean, like would go to Itaewon for like shopping and, you know, there'd be like rundown bars and clubs in Itaewon, but it was, there was nothing there. It was like considered like the, the ghetto area, one of the ghetto areas of Seoul. I, I, I thought that that was um, kind of silly that, you know, it's right next to a major U.S. military base and that's where all the foreigners hung out. And um, I, I remembered I had a friend that worked at Samsung at the time, and he said that um, Samsung did a big market research on um, like basically like who spends the most money in Korea. And, and even though like uh, combining like with uh, Korean Americans and foreigners and expats, they actually they're, they're less than 30 percent of the um you know, population in Korea, but they commanded 80% of the market, which I thought was very interesting. And it kind of made sense because Koreans at the time, um, I don't know how much it is today, but Koreans were more of like, they save money for their families. Uh, they, you know, they live with their parents, usually until they get married, typically in Korean culture. And, you know, they don't need to buy furniture. They don't need to buy like a new TV or, or rent an apartment. It's usually foreigners or Korean Americans or students people that uh, from abroad that are actually spending most of their money when they move to Korea, even like going out and partying, you know, Korean Americans, especially like, even though they're from the States, they, you know, they, they want to network when they go to Korea. So they go to the clubs and the bars to like try and meet new people. And, and I, I didn't, I didn't notice that like a, a majority of my big spending clientele were foreigners and, and uh, Korean Americans, they weren't Koreans. When was the first time you've opened up your own bar? It was back when uh, the original Circle Lounge opened, and uh, it was actually in the Cheongdam area. How old were you? Late 20s. Oh. So, like 20, 27, 26. So I actually didn't invest in this lounge, but at the time I, I had a pretty uh, big name for myself as a big promoter. And obviously, um, I actually didn't speak you know hardly any Korean at the time, and I wasn't fluent in Korean at the time or anything. and you know, most of my clientele was like foreigners and Korean Americans. So like the, the Korean owners um, that were opening up that uh, circle, they needed, you know, like partners that could actually bring a crowd to the club. So that's kind of how I fell into it as a partner. I did that for a while. Um, I think it was like almost a year. And then I realized that I wasn't really making money, even though I was bringing most of the people. And then that's that's actually when I decided to like just start my own my own stuff. You know, I, I knew that I could leverage my network and my um, my clientele to like get a good deal and work with somebody else and pitch in and start another club my on my on my own. Because Circle at the time, I was actually more of a face owner. I, I didn't like actually invest in it or put any money into the the business, and I didn't really have any power either. They were just using me for my customers, which would have been fine, but I was not getting paid. Every month they'd be like, oh, like we didn't make money or oh, like we, I'm like, I'm bringing all the business. Like, how, how are we not making money? Like, I, you guys are making money, but I'm not making money like this. I'm like, you know, it, it, there was no reason for me to stay. I can imagine that not seeing a return on your investment, even if what you're bringing is, you know, clientele and you're not formally investing, like you said, money into it. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that that's frustrating. The big problem with people um, that a lot of people don't realize with opening like a bar or a club or even a restaurant, like you could spend millions of dollars opening up a club. And if you don't have a good marketing team or a good promotion team, you just lost millions of dollars. Like it's you, no amount of money is going to, you know, like uh, ensure a club successful. You need to have the right people behind it. Club business is very tricky because uh, like I've noticed a uh, Clubs, like their lifespan is usually two to three years. Yeah, you can make a lot of money very quickly, but you can also like lose a lot of money very quickly. And even if you are successful, you better be ready to like continuously rebrand or like remodel and, in order to keep it going for more than three years. Getting thousands of people to go to your club every week, it's not like you're just calling a few people. Um as an as an owner of a, a club, you have to like network, you have to take care of your VIPs, 
you have to book DJs to keep them interested. You can't be playing the same music all the time. Constantly have to like deal with customers. Every weekend we had did worry about fights. And I mean, we had probably like 20 or 30 people losing items every weekend that we would have to either track down or sometimes maybe they didn't lose their items. Uh, we had one customer that was that was trying to say, what, oh, uh, oh, your waiter spilled um, some juice on my $5,000 like Armani suit. That It was actually, I think, that, that reason why I actually got more into fashion. And like I had to learn like what, you know, people were wearing, like what was actually real, what wasn't. In Asia, there's a lot of like knockoff uh, designer stuff. So, you know, you know, a girl walks in with a, a freaking Kelly Birkin Hermes bag and that's normally $300,000. I, I need to know the differences from a fake and a real one. And sometimes it's almost hard to tell with certain brands. You were the former CEO of Paradise Casino in Korea, which is one of the biggest casinos in South Korea, in Incheon. How did you go from a former business owner of clubs to all the way up there? My opportunity with Paradise happened um, by accident. I, I was friends with a guy named Kay at the time. He was actually one of my VIPs at the club. This is, you're fast forwarding now like two, three years later. By then I had multiple clubs, multiple bars, um, a few restaurants and and I still obviously had my entertainment company and my promotion team. It was almost like a similar situation, actually, that opportunity with Circle. Um, they they wanted somebody to promote to the foreign market. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, in Korea, you know, Koreans cannot gamble. I was actually the perfect person to become a, a casino partner there. So they, you know, they brought me in originally as a casino junket. Uh, a lot of people know what casino junkets are. I can't really go into details on like the the partner, my partnership with the casino, just for like confidentiality reasons. But what I can tell you is like I did have to come up with a lot of money, put it in deposit. Like you, you still have to invest in um, the casino even um, if you came in later. How many circles? <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, the unique thing about Paradise City is like the casino group and the hotel group is completely different. The casino and the hotel is in the same building, but it's owned by different groups mm. and different investors. And, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of um, like the other owners and investors and stuff like that. And definitely learned a lot about the gaming space. What I can tell you about the gaming space is um, uh, I would probably never get into it again unless I... I opened up my own hotel and casino. Why? Because um, I was just a face owner at Paradise City. Um, they, they, they literally just, same thing, um, used me to bring all the customers and clientele because that's literally the, the, the entire market my entertainment company had. Yeah. But at the same time, I knew that. And I was okay with that because, I mean, I've been to Las Vegas before that at the time. And I was, by then, I'm like in my early 30s. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, I'm going to be like, you know, a part of a bit like one of the biggest casinos in East Asia. And I thought it, and it, I thought it was a huge opportunity and uh, it was a dream come true. Awesome. OK, so you had mentioned that you had faced some darker sides of business in Korea. Could you share mm -hmm. some of those stories with us? Uh, I mean, that's a very long list. <laughs> he started with um, a side, the drinking culture and. Yeah. You've mentioned some dark sides. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, even if it's just to the industry um, as well, you know? I mean, with the, the drinking culture, it's definitely different compared to uh, America. I mean, in Korea, you're, it's, you know, they call them hueshig, so you're required to, you know, drink and party with your coworkers. And sometimes it's like, you know, all the time, almost like two, three times a week. It really depends on the boss and the owners of the company. Um, I actually think that a lot of owners do that, including me. I did it a lot. One for like camaraderie. I wanted to kind of like immerse myself in Korean culture, even though like I didn't grow up in Korea. I, I had a lot of Koreans that worked for me. You know, as far as like the dark side go, I, I would say that that's probably one of the reasons why Korea um, Korea's number one in the world and drinking. A lot of people don't know that, that we um, per capita, we drink more alcohol every day than any other country in the world by far actually russia is number two and they don't even drink half as much as koreans 
you can Google this and look it up. I mean, and there's times where like we would party all night until 9 a.m. and then go to work the next day. So it's uh, it, it's definitely um, a, a very tiring Korean culture. And that's why like it's funny, like I moved to Vegas from Korea and, you know, in, in Vegas, people are like, oh, like you came here for the partying. I was like, um, Vegas is like a vacation to me. I, I, there ain't no partying in Vegas. You want to party, go to Korea. Well, on the news, we hear a lot of Korean culture of like burning sun scandal. There's a lot of these, you know, dark nightlife that's being talked about in the media. Is that something you're mm -hmm. talking about? As far as um, shady business goes, I mean, happens all the time. Um, I think probably one of my biggest like uh, backstabbings would be like the first festival I tried to plan in Korea. I tried to start the first Woodstock festival. Uh, my partner Sungo, he he invested a quarter million dollars into getting the the Woodstock rights from Artie Cornfield. I was going to be the the main promoter for the festival. So I also booked all the artists at the time. So I worked with CAA and William Morris and UTA, and um, I got a really good. Um, reputation with the you know and connections with the agencies because like we we had a five million dollar budget and three million of that was just to booking artists so we booked like carrie hills i booked carrie hilson mama's gun simple plan um our headliner was carlos santana so we sent them all um in, in the the artist world you have to actually pay half up front it's called the artist buyer fee so we paid half up front and that's where um like about a million and a half of that five million dollar budget went we had three investors at the time the main investor um that invested was going to invest about 2.5 million he didn't want to invest till we booked all the artists allegedly so i booked all the artists and then two weeks before we were supposed to pay the the rest of the money because uh, you have to pay the artist in full um before they even perform that's just uh, industry standard. And the, the, the main investor pulls out last minute. So we didn't have money to actually pay the rest of the fees for the, the artists. Mm. So that entire show got canceled. I never got paid for booking artists. And as an agent, you're supposed to get an X percentage. So like for me at the time, like that's a lot of money. I, 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 was, I should have made almost three to $300,000 just on booking fees alone. But the artist never came, so instead, we you know we lost money. And uh, the funny thing is, is that guy that pulled out, he was secretly planning another festival simultaneously the same weekend that the Woodstock festival was planned to happen. And we already sold thousands of tickets, so all these people now had nowhere to go that weekend. So he started a festival called the Naxan Festival. Didn't really have to promote that much because, you know, you had tens of thousands of people that were going to go to a festival that's no longer happening. And then he brought in Kanye West and a bunch of other artists and did a completely different festival. You know, all the other investors obviously got screwed because they lost their money. I got screwed because I never got paid for like almost eight months worth of work. So I basically everybody got screwed except that investor that pulled out. And that was one of my biggest lessons. And Sometimes business goes bad and you have no control over it. Business might have failed and, and there's nothing you could have done about it. I always tell people that I'm probably one of the most successful failures you'll ever meet. A lot of times it was out of my control. I couldn't have predicted it. I couldn't have done anything differently. It just happens. How did he pull out last minute if he has a contract with you guys and he's already paid and invested in that Woodstock Festival? Thing, so the thing with investors, we didn't have a contract with him in Korea. He old school and they they pulled a oh like a verbal promise card on you kind of thing mm -hmm. like that's how a lot of business was done back then this is oh, like 15 years ago too you know this is not like in the digital era where we had docu signs and and like you know instagram wasn't even around when i was a promoter that's why like um it's so funny when i meet like younger generation kids that are in their 20s they're like who are you i was like <laughs> like you know they're like, uh, we, we don't see your stuff on Instagram or social media. I was like, you're not going to see stuff yeah. like it wasn't like Instagram wasn't even a thing back then. Facebook was barely even a thing, uh, you know, when I was a promoter towards the end. And then, yeah, I just uh, just think it's funny that like uh, a lot of the younger generation they don't know how differently it was done back then. We had to go out on the street and uh, in Korea, you call it like uh, in Korea, you call them bickies. 
Like we had to have street promoters go out and pass out flyers for every event and every party. We didn't have like Instagram to post, Hey guys, come to this bar or club this weekend. Or, you know, it's, it, that's not how we promoted back then. It was through word of mouth, um, BTLPR and, um, and that was it. Yeah. Kind of like you're saying, it's such a different time to have to develop skill sets that maybe, um, you know, not to say of course that you don't need it, that skill set as well on social media, yeah. but yeah, I can imagine that that's a lot different. Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, how you mentioned that younger kids now are saying, you know, Oh, I, I've never seen you or heard of you, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. like, you know, I walked so you could run, <laughs> you know, what do you mean? <laughs> what is your biggest and largest business deals that happened at that time? And can you tell us the amount of money you made and how you got that opportunity? That's actually a hard question to answer because even though like, um, at my peak, I had a, you know, my hotel and casino well, casino and magazine company. I had my bars and my clubs and my restaurants and stuff, but I wouldn't say that like I made a like large sum of money from any of those businesses, to be honest. Um, the most money I made in Korea was through trading. And, uh, that's what I was doing during the week and during the day, like, you know, doing parties and going like clubbing and bars, like a nightlife kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I was a workaholic. So during the day, I would be meeting people all the time. And, and that's actually how I naturally got into international trade is because Korea is a big hub for international travelers. It all started with just people asking me like, hey, do you know somebody from Dubai that can get me this? And I'm like, actually, yeah, I had a VIP buddy at like one of my parties last weekend that says he does this in Dubai. Or, I'm like, hey, do you know anybody in, um, you know, China that does this? So I'm like, oh, yeah, I got a bunch of VIP Chinese clients that probably can um, connect me. And they were more than happy to connect me because they know that next time they walked into my my club, I would take care of them. So, like, all of a sudden, um, I realized that I didn't just have a great network in Korea. I had a global network and that I could continuously grow it and leverage my relationships. So I probably made... Um, the most money being a broker, because even though I'm a trader now, there's a lot of risk in trade. But in Korea, I would just broker deals. And let's say probably one of the biggest deals I did was in India with a, um, NHAI. And this was back when uh, the Indian currency like kind of like went to sh went to crap. And all their um, highway toll systems like were not working because they were using um, just cash at the time. They didn't have um, like digital cards like the Korean High Pass or the you know digital public transportation stuff. So I brokered a deal and convinced them to use Korean High Pass. They were actually deciding on um, a German company and a Chinese company and a Korean company. But I pretty much told them, I was like, you can either overpay for a German company to work with or you can get crap product from China, or you can go with Korea that's rated one of the best public transportation um, countries in the world. And, you know, get a fair price and actually get a good bang for your buck. So that was a $500 million deal that I got a very nice commission on. And that's just like one example of like, you know, sometimes like I'm just a power broker um, in Korea and I was just connecting the right people. So I was always the person that people would call, like if they needed an introduction or if they um, thought that like they needed to reach out to somebody. And even till this day, I get phone calls every day from people asking me to make introductions. So you just met this guy at the club. You're just like pouring him drink. No, actually, the, the, the Indian deal was not a guy I met at the club. It was like I, I met some Indian clients at the club and then they would bring to me like, hey, like, you know, because a lot of. Um, a lot of people are entrepreneurs too and trying to like just make deals happen and that's how like um, you make money. I, I actually firmly believe that it, um, for anybody that um, ever does watch this, if you want to get rich slowly, get into real estate. If you want to get rich quickly, get into trading. Um, so there was a time when you sold all your businesses and came back to America around 2018, 2019. Um, what made you close those businesses in Korea? All the shady stuff going on, all the backstabbing. Um, even um, the funny thing is, is like, so I didn't actually sell all my clubs. Uh, one of them was actually taken from me from under my nose. Uh, I mean, that's just a whole nother backstab story. I was actually at my friend's wedding in uh, San Diego. Uh, I was the best man at the wedding, my friend Philip. 
And I get a call from my CFO in Korea and he's like, Heath, when are you going to tell me you're going to sell House Ming? And I was like, I'm in San Diego at a wedding. How the heck would I have sold my club? Like I'm a, I was a 60% owner of it actually. And turns out my 40% partner, Chris, yeah, I'm going to call his ass out because uh, Chris, I mean, where are you? <laughs> you got some explaining to do. I mean, that's his, um, he got, that's his American name, but he's an older Korean guy. I don't even oh. remember his Korean name. That's how much like he's dead to me now, mm. but he went to the Chung, like the, the, um, district office forged a power of attorney with my signature on it and sold the club from under my nose oh my gosh that's insane and the funny thing is is um i was planning on i I wanted to obviously go after him like sue him and stuff and then it turns out i talked to my um um, lawyer at the time and they're like you're not going to get anything out of this uh you know he actually had a few other bars and restaurants um allegedly uh, that he owned. So he ended up changing the names to all of his businesses to his, under his mistress's name, not his wife's, his fucking (laughs) girlfriend's name. Yeah. Um, and then basically they're like, he's like, you can spend tens of thousands of dollars going after this guy, but you're not going to get a single penny out of him. I mean, I'm a big believer in karma, but the, the, my biggest, um, upset with that backstabbing is, that I was stuck with the bills, all the vendors, all the alcohol suppliers, all the workers still had to get paid. Well, it's under his um, message's name. So technically, doesn't she have to pay them now? That's no, no, I'm, I, I was going to sue him to get money out of his other businesses. Obviously, he's not going to be dumb enough to and leave uh, that money that he made in his own personal account. That's just how shady businessmen do it. Mm. The guys that are shady, like serial, um, con artists they will never have a lot of money under their name mm. they'll put it under a trust they'll put it in like someone else's name they'll the house will be in somebody else's name that's how they get away with it all the time so people need to be aware of that my best friend at the time tim uh um, he stole a lot of money from me. <laughs> his name's tim schmicky uh, I'm 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 hundred percent sure that he's in hiding. And uh yeah, I was also the best man at his wedding too. Yeah, I always ha- I, I always knew that um he had a shady side about him, even when we were in the military together. But I always believed that he was too terrified of me to ever backstab me. And the funny thing is is like that's actually just my arrogance and uh my lack of uh th- that's a huge mistake on my part, to be honest. I don't even blame him. I've always known that he was a shady character, but I just thought he would be—he would never be dumb enough to do that to me. But sure as shit, he did. He—he he, um, the before I left, he when he found out that I decided to move back to the states, he's you know came by to say bye to me, and then before um, I re- noticed realized it, all my expensive watches were gone. I actually took the key money. So in Korea, where you have like um, key deposits for all of, uh, like if you want an apartment there, you have to put in a key deposit of like at least, like, usually like ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Took the key deposit money. Also, he um, stole my credit card, went to Hong Kong with it, and racked up a $50,000 bill. And uh, till this day, like, um, yeah, like uh, I don't bank with Chase anymore because of it. Uh, yeah, the, the the bank wouldn't even give me my money back, even after I, I was like, "Hey, this is my passport." I clearly was not in China making like, how did a, a, a random stranger make all these charges when I'm in Korea? And they just like, "No, nope, that's your fault." I'm like, "What? Are you serious? How is that my fault?" Like, the, it's not like they were small charges. Another factor was like, I know earlier you mentioned that like I was considered one of the kings of Taiwan, and there was a reason for that because I I I. Definitely would say that if I wasn't the most important, one of the top three most important people that was involved in the, like the growing of that Itaewon culture. One, I was a promoter and um, outside of the area, and a lot of business owners that decided to open businesses in Itaewon, even not not just my businesses, all the other clubs and bars and restaurants, they moved to Itaewon because of me. I promised I would promote their clubs and their bars because I I, knew, I saw the potential of like just the, it was a great location. It was centrally located, it was right next to the military base. A lot of all the foreigners that actually spend money already go there or live there, 
And the next thing you know, like it becomes the next hotspot. And that's actually another reason um, that was that's probably a big, a big reason why I left, too, is a lot of those business owners that pretended to be my friends pretended to like actually care. I used to go to their restaurants, their bars and businesses all the time. They ghosted me once. Uh, once they saw that, like, I no longer have my club that was stolen from me. And I, I pulled out of the, the casino business because of reasons I can't really say um, publicly because um, I'm, it wouldn't be safe to say anything about that. But as far as uh, like the the stuff I did in Itaewon, yeah, I'm I'm I definitely uh, don't really care to do business um, in that area again. And it's uh, the funny thing is, is after I right after I left Korea and like uh, the F&B business, you know, COVID happens and all those businesses went to shit anyways. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's just so hilarious. Like, that's just like karma. And even after I left Korea, there was a lot of people that I tried to keep in touch with. And, you know, they pretended to stay, still be friends with me. But then later on, I'd find out they came to Vegas and didn't tell me. Or find out that like, I'm like, Vegas is a small city, literally, like everybody lives 20, 15, 20 minutes away. And I actually would still I still went out of my way to like, hey, like, let's grab drinks or like, let's meet up. No, too busy with family or I'm like, it like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, we used to like hang out every day or all the time. And, and now you're too busy to see me. In their defense, I would say that some people, you know, I, I remember I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people that backstabbed me in Korea. I only told you two stories, hundreds of stories. Um, a lot of people that backstab me, what you also have to worry about is that they'll also turn around and talk shit about you behind your back and say things that, you know, they know they can get away with because you're no longer there. And uh, they no longer like fear you because you're not there. There's not a single person in Korea that can talk shit to me to my face. And that I can say 100% without a doubt. Now, there was people I tried to like, you know, meet up with and be like, hey, like, I heard you were saying stuff. And like, oh, like they'd come up with excuses or I'd run, you know, because obviously I visited Korea, you know, several times after I moved out away from Korea. Even uh, Grace, you went with me to Korea. Mm-hmm. Funny, I'd, I'd run into these people that I knew were saying stuff or spreading lies or owed me a crap ton of money, and they'd pretend like nothing happened. Hey, Heath, how are you doing? I'm like, are you serious right now, dude? You're really going to pretend like you're my friend? Like, that's just how two-faced people are. And I actually think that that kind of also falls in line with um, Korean-Americans in Korea. I'm not trying to call a lot of Korean-Americans out. What I learned is uh, a lot of foreigners and korean americans like go to korea they play this image game and they pretend to be somebody they're not they talk about they talk a lot of uh bullshit about what they did back in the states i mean i met guys that try to say that they played chess with tupac i met guys that try to say they were in the military when they weren't yeah exactly no i i literally have met like jackasses like that in korea i had a guy that tried to say he was in the military obviously i was in the military for almost nine years i got deployed twice and i met this guy jc that kept trying to tell people oh i was in the marines i did this and that. i'm like oh, oh you went to afghanistan oh like what area were you oh i can't tell you it's top secret i was like oh i had a top secret clearance you can tell me no uh, <laughs> I, I don't i don't remember and like are you serious right now dude why like for me as a veteran i'm like why would you lie about what you like why would you like like that's actually disrespectful and it just dis- not only disrespects people like me it disrespects my friends that were in the military and it disrespects the guys that actually fought and died over there mm-hmm. like you you should be ashamed of yourself not to mention like then you have all these other koreans that are like oh i'm from la i was doing this or i was like you know a, a gangster here and stuff and i'm like i don't care if you were a gangster in la i don't care like you're in korea you you have no power here you know there's no drugs in korea and if you do do drugs it's highly it's more illegal than anywhere else you know you you get caught with smoking weed in korea you're going to jail not only you go to jail 
well, anybody you're affiliated with goes to jail kind of that's how serious drugs are in korea so i, I just I just thought it was so funny when like people would try so hard to be somebody they they're not. And that's another reason I got so tired of it. I got tired of all the fake people, the people that would say to my face, Hey, you're my best friend, Heath, and then turn around and try and stab me in the back. And that's when I realized I needed to stay under the radar from now on. So I don't tell people what I'm doing. I don't let people know how successful I am. Like, I mean, Grace, you've been to Vegas. You've seen like what I'm doing out here. I purposely do not post what I do anymore. I don't use social media. Um, you know, nobody has any idea what kind of like cars I drive. I, I guarantee that if people knew what I was doing from Korea, like hundreds of people would just hit me up just to pretend like they were my friends again. And, and I'm, I'm tired of it. So like, I, I know who my real friends are I, and I, I do actually very well in the states i'm doing much better than i do did in korea and i make much more money why the hell would i ever go back is backstabbing like a thing in the korean culture korean american culture or do you think you were just surrounded by the wrong people that you've no i i actually don't think it's like um just a korean thing i think it's just a business thing if you get into business like you're gonna run into problems you're gonna run into backstabbings no matter what country what culture or what group ethnicity i'm not trying to talk bad about korea as a whole i have i still have a lot of great friends in korea i still keep in touch with a lot of people in korea i actually still do business with korea mm -hmm. but of only a handful of people i will do business with in korea and there's only a handful of people i keep in touch with in korea everybody else that kind of disappeared or um you know i tried to keep in touch with if they don't want to keep in touch with me, then that's their loss. Back at my height, I, I realized that I put a target on my back because everybody knew I was successful. I was literally in my early 30s, and I owned a bunch of bars, clubs, and restaurants, and was a CEO at a casino group, and my magazine company, and I was self-made. I didn't come from a rich family. I was a pretty ripe target, meaning like everybody saw me as like a, a guy to make money off of and i mean we were i would catch people on cctv like my own bartenders or waiters were stealing laptops out of the club or pocketing the cash that when table um, reservations would pay in cash and everybody was stealing from me and that is another just big business lesson that i had to learn and um it's a it, it, was, it was a huge headache because you couldn't really trust people everybody's gonna be nice to you to your face did you ever like punch them be like yeah <laughs> or were you the nice that's boss? funny thing no that's the funny thing is like i surprisingly being in nightlife for almost 15 years i never got into a single fight all my partners got into fights is crazy even like my nicest partners like jeff i got into fights before um our events and parties and and um i never got into a single fight and so, like i would even jump in like when one of my partners was getting like into a fight or like one of my guests i'd jump in like hey like break it up or if you want to fight fight me and nobody would ever actually fight me i thought it was hilarious i do think that it does help that a lot of um my friends did know that i was ex-military and i wasn't just ex-military i was an instructor in the military so fighting me wouldn't have been a good idea anyways which is good because I, I don't like fighting and um surprisingly i never had to fight anybody but i grew up like getting beat up and jumped all the time uh in tulsa growing up in tulsa oklahoma i was like there's no koreans in tulsa oklahoma so i had to learn that jackie chan stuff at a very young age you just let that go you just let those waiters stealing go no um like when we catch them like um they, they would get fired and stuff wow. obviously but it just it would be it'd be funny and sometimes people would steal and like they think that there weren't cameras in certain areas like i had cameras in the freaking locker rooms you know mm -hmm. like like where the employees would keep their um their uh like purses and stuff like that it wasn't like the kind of gym locker rooms like obviously no uh, we had like lockers for the staff to like put their um like personal belongings in and the people were trying to break into them and steal so like we had to put cameras every in every little nook of the of the venues um how many businesses do you run now and how as an asian american have you built your reputation and businesses in america 
Actually, in America, I don't run a lot of my companies. I I learned my lesson in Korea. So one of my biggest downfalls in Korea was I try to run every company. I was the majority shareholder in most of the businesses that I owned in Korea, including like the bars and restaurants and clubs. And uh, like if I would focus on one club, then another club would like suffer. Because so many people, like I, I was a good promoter, but my biggest downfall as a promoter was people wanted to see me. So if I wasn't at my club that weekend, like hundreds of people would not be there either because like they wanted to see with me or party with me or try and do business with me. And that was actually, um, uh, I, I, I don't, wouldn't say it was necessarily a mistake. Um, I, for that but i think my mistake was actually trying to run too many businesses at the same time so now in this uh being in america i do own many companies but i don't run hardly any of them um i have ceos that run a lot of the companies i'll either invest in them and just have other people run them and i've had a lot of bad investments in the states i mean i last year alone i probably had five bad investments i had a few friends I gave, I'd give like a hundred grand to, and then they turn around and disappear. And I'm like, well, that's your loss, dude. You could have made millions of dollars with me, but you want to disappear. That's your loss. I don't like get too caught up with that. Um, my, my biggest weakness is I try to have a kind heart and give people a chance and, and, uh, ignore my, um, my intuition sometimes because like, they'll give me a big sob story. I met this guy like actually recently in Vegas. His name's Martin Sakura. Yeah, I'm calling his ass out too. And they, he's now wanted, um, uh, the, like the police are looking for him. He hung out with me. He, he hung out with me for six months and I paid for everything. And he gave me this whole sob story, all the um, Hell's Angels in LA took all my money. Like I got like robbed and like, I don't have anything now. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'll give you a shot. And so I gave him a shot and then he disappeared. Um, I, I'm not going to disclose exactly how much money I gave him, but it was a lot. And then it uh, turns out like this random girl calls me. I was like, hey, like, did do you know a guy named Martin? I was like, yeah, like I'm looking for him. She's like, oh, like he's a serial con artist. So I was like, what are you talking about? Like I hung out with this guy for like six months and I met him through mutual friends I already did business with that like vouched for this guy. And then she sent me an article and turns out he's, he also got caught robbing a bank in Las Vegas. Like, yeah, literally like I was hanging out with a bank robber for six months. Like I didn't even know. Oh, where's your intuition? No joke. Yeah, right? No, I mean that, that's why I can call his name out because it's like, I, I would, wait, what? I was hanging out with a freaking guy that's wanted for robbing a freaking bank. I, I thought that only happens in movies. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, the, you never know it with people it's it's hilarious it's uh, i mean i i was flabbergasted when i saw that article was he like a best actor after all your backstabbing stories like no like that's that was my point earlier like, sometimes i kind of ignore my intuition like when it comes to business sometimes i'll give people a shot even if they have no experience um there's a uh, there's a group of kids in vegas now that i i, I invested in that i met them on a hike randomly uh, I, you met them too, Grace, and like they wanted me to give them a shot. So I was like, you know what? Uh, I literally a, a week after meeting them, I just gave them money, and uh, I'm actually making money off them. I've been getting my my you know payments for the last four years now, and I just met them randomly on a hike in Mount Charleston. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I have a lot of business failures, but then when you meet real people, I have a lot of business success too. I mean, I met. Even you, Grace, I met you randomly at one of my clubs in Korea through a, a friend. And remember how we met, like you, you wanted some help with some business and he told you, Hey, he does the guy to, to meet. And that's kind of like, was my reputation in Korea. Everybody wanted to meet me. Everybody wanted to do business with me. And like, if, and even like, uh, people had just moved, they, they would recommend, oh, you should meet Heath. And that's like the funny thing is, is like I think it's hilarious that there's still people in Korea that maybe they're still talking bad about me. But I can tell you right now, anybody that's talking bad about me, they're probably because they owe me money. Mm. I, I've learned over the years, people that steal from you 
like it's almost like a human self-defense mechanism like they will try and gaslight you they'll try and but um it's not like they're gonna admit to their friends oh yeah like i i was stealing from heath all this time oh i i owe heath money like even this girl um actually yeah i'll, I'll call her as ass out to uh my my ceo that ran my magazine company in korea annie um i gave her thirty thousand dollars to start my magazine company and all I wanted in return was a, an expense sheet, like every month, and like where the money was going. And literally, I didn't get anything till the very end when I was like, "I'm not, you know, going to keep paying you if I don't even know where my money's going." You know that that's another reason why it's like, dang, even the people closest to you, you can, you don't know if you can trust them, like people in your own company. Well, on that note, how do you deal with all the work stress and how do you keep yourself positive and keep going? In my, in my perspective, anybody that's ever screwed me over is their loss. You know, I'm, I'm trying to like make a difference and um, make the world a better place. And I always think that like focusing on what could have, would have, should have is like a waste of your energy. And when you could be focusing on what you can do now and like into the future, and anytime like I do run into bad business deals, I still run into bad deals even till this day. Like I just move forward and learn. The biggest thing is you have to learn from your mistakes. All the mistakes that I made, I'll never make again. And the crazy thing is, is just, there's going to be constantly mistakes that you'll make. There's no successful people out there that never made mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And if I even like when I meet new people, if they try and say that. They like, oh, I start this company and like, if they talk too much about themselves, like, like they, like their shit doesn't stink. It probably stinks. And it, it's a huge red flag to me. It's cause it's like, now there is like a few exceptions to the rule, maybe like young influencers that have like, that's all they've ever done, you know, like, or like, you know, those like uh, crypto millionaires. Okay. Maybe they're financially successful, but would I ever do business with them? No. They don't know shit about business, like like because uh, you made a you know a couple hundred million on on a crypto bet. Okay, that doesn't mean you're a businessman. You don't know about business. I mean uh, that's why like these days I mostly work with people much older than me. Uh, most of my business partners today are like on average eighty to ninety years old, and I mean um, Grace has actually met a lot of my business partners, and it's funny as like their grandkids are older than me. And I've learned that like I'm not going to learn from people my age or younger than me. So like even for me, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world. I don't even think I'm smart. Um, my favorite personal quote I tell myself and other people is, "As soon as you think you know everything, you know nothing." And I, I always, I always believe that till the day I die, I can always learn tomorrow. I can always learn more, even if I'm the so-called expert at anything. Tomorrow, somebody can. Be better than you at it when you stop learning and stop growing i think that's a really important point like when you shut yourself off to learning something you automatically shut yourself off to growing even more and someone will eventually surpass you you've obviously dealt with a lot of you know betrayals and you know like you mentioned mm -hmm. made some bad investments um i know you credited like listening to your instincts and your intuition as something you know to to do moving forward in order to possibly make better investments but what is something that you would say is really important in terms of distinguishing between, you know, making or between a bad investment and a good investment, if you will. Sometimes it's not even about the business. You can actually have the perfect business plan and the business can still fail. It's about actually the people. A lot of uh, successful billionaires, they'll tell you the same thing. Like um, Warren Buffett, like he invests in people. And he makes that very clear when he does investments. He's like, I didn't invest in the business. I invested in the person. Like I, I saw a story recently about him like investing in some like old lady that ran a furniture store for like X amount of decades. And he told it and they're like, why'd you why'd you invest in this random furniture? I'm like, I invested in the person. I like the person. Uh, uh, if you can't trust the people you're working with, you probably shouldn't be working with them. And even on the flip side, if you're not an investor and like you are someone that has an idea and you need to find someone to invest in your idea. I advice I always tell people all the time, don't use your own money. If you can't find somebody to invest in your business idea, it's probably not a good business. And why like risk your own personal money 
when like you don't have to like there's a lot of people out there looking for opportunities even people like me like i don't i learned my mistake in career. i don't have time to run freaking 20 30 companies anymore i have time to run one company and invest in others and that's what i do now is like i use my time more wisely i hyper focus on um like what i'm good at and then let and pay other people to do what i'm not good at i think i lost like seven grand on crypto oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man <laughs> yeah, yeah. not that bad but yeah. anyway he would you like a mini astrology reading since emma is a professional <laughs> astrologist what do you think really um yeah i i think you have all yeah you already have all my information so yeah that's fine yeah. okay so we're gonna do a mini astrology i don't, I don't think i don't think i've ever gotten an astrology reading before oh okay all right it's so gonna be a treat for you <laughs> this is great yeah. awesome okay yeah so i'll just you know share a, a little bit here but yeah i did look at your chart and i find it really astonishing to me now that i've actually sat down and gotten to hear mm -hmm. um some of your answers more in depth i'm pretty shocked but also not shocked at how well it lines up with your astrology I noticed that you have uh, Sun, Moon, and Mercury in the sign of Cancer. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because sometimes you'll find a lot of Cancer, uh, not, not everybody who's a Cancer, but a lot of Cancers in the military. Because mm -hmm. the drive behind Cancer energy is to nurture and protect. And obviously be being mm -hmm. in the military, that, you know, that energy and that archetype is very much activated uh, because you are in some form protecting there's a lot that you're protecting right whether it's your own homeland yeah. your um you know fellow comrades in you know that are right there with you right the people the citizens of say korea um so i thought that that was really um interesting it stood out really clearly i know you had also mentioned that you were an instructor in the military as well and you have a yeah. rising in sagittarius sagittarius is the archetype of the teacher um, and you, you had alluded a few times to, um, you know, always learning, always trying to be open to learning from your mistakes or just in general, not, um, capping your own growth by, um, assuming that you're going to be the smartest person in every room that you walk into, if you will. Um, and so the rising sign represents how you navigate the world and how you're also seen by others. So it's also very fitting, um, that, you know, you were an instructor or, you know, embodied that teacher archetype, um, in the military as well. Um, but what yeah. I find to match, you know, really, really in depth is like everything that you were saying about your career in astrology, the 10th house represents our career, our public reputation, how we mm -hmm. are perceived by the masses and what it is that we offer the world. You have, um, Mars, Mars, uh, Saturn and Pluto in your 10th house. And so those are all things that, um, <laughs> they can tell you about things that you might experience in your career. So the number one thing that I was getting from this conversation yeah. is a ton of betrayal, like a ton of backstabbings, a ton of shadiness going on. And when you have Pluto yeah. in the 10th house, um, by the way, wherever Pluto sits in your in your natal chart, whatever house it sits in, it can uh, indicate that that area of life is potentially where people or where you will face um, betrayal or, you know, where you will find yourself you know, kind mm -hmm. of up against some shady characters. And in this case for you, it's in the area of your career. And interestingly enough, the strength or the, the one of the lessons, if you will, that you can learn from having Pluto in the 10th house is to follow your instinct. <laughs> um, yeah. Pluto is a planet that is at home in, in Scorpio and Scorpio is a sign that is uh, deeply connected to its survival instincts. Um, because of the nature of things like betrayal, there is also a darkness and an intrigue, I think, which is interesting because I know that you had mentioned, um, you know, I try to give everybody a chance, you know, I try to see kind of the potential that people have to offer and I, I wanna give them an opportunity. Um, and I think it's at some point as well, there can also be a draw to what you don't know, um, maybe investing in something that you haven't before, um, which is very plutonic and very scorpionic as well. But kind of like you're saying, you've you've learned over some time that, you know, hey, sometimes when I get this weird feeling about this, um, it's actually my intuition speaking to me that maybe this isn't the best investment to be making. Um, so that's yeah. the first thing. Um, by the way, Saturn, Pluto and Mars for you all fall in Libra and Libra is all about um, social connections. They are connector archetypes. So the fact that, you know, you were a promoter in, you know, started as a promoter in nightlife, um, and you had a, a job that relied 
strongly on your ability to connect people in a social environment. Um, that's extremely on brand for, um, you know, for, for nightlife, but also even for any type of like governmental or diplomatic kind of leanings. Um, a lot of people with Libra in their chart can sometimes be found in like legal, um, like le the legal industry, you know, lawyers or, or even diplomats. Yeah. Um, so I find that interesting because there's a, an emphasis on fairness and, and justice and things being balanced and reciprocal. And I know that you had said a few things that kind of alluded to an imbalance and reciprocity or fairness in some of these, um, you know, relationships that you had built with people. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, with Saturn and Libra in the 10th house, it does imply a certain amount of success. I think, uh, with, especially with business or investing, you know, investment, um, can lean a little bit into like workaholism. Um, and I think one of the shadows of Saturn energy is like attributing your worth or your value to the achievements that you, you have garnered, if you will. Um, and, and then with Pluto, some of the shadows there can be, uh, you know, developing this thirst and this hunger for power and control. Um, not saying, and by the way, not saying that any of this is you, I'm um, mm -hmm. just saying that it's interesting. You've probably had to think about these things or at one point they probably crossed your mind. Um, and yeah. it's interesting how in some of these betrayal, uh, instances or these instances of betrayal, you may have found that the, even if it wasn't you, maybe the people that you had been attracting were so hungry for power or control or money or whatever it is that they were willing to like completely burn everything else to the ground as long as they could win at all costs. And that is actually like a Mars thing. And you also have Mars in the 10th house. So yeah. it can represent conflict, um, aggression, you know, people that you find yourself butting, butting heads with, uh, regularly. Um, and so I know, I know a lot of that kind of doesn't sound maybe so pleasant, but the strength of all mm -hmm. those things is somebody who yeah. pretty much is, I, I never want to say guaranteed to be successful, but you end up becoming someone provided that you sort of, you know, learn from these things who is yeah. uh, very successful, seen as an authority in their industry or in the world at large in general. Um, somebody who holds a lot of power and also is a little bit mysterious because due to the experiences you've had, you've probably learned, which I know you did say, um, that, you know, you shouldn't forecast and broadcast everything that you're doing, every little detail, every little success that you're having. Yeah. Um, because unfortunately, you know, you make a really good point. There are people out there who want what you have, you know, and they are willing yeah. to really go for the throat if it means that they have a chance at taking that from you. So, um, I, I think, I think it's just really, really interesting how, um, you know, the astrology with your career, like everything that you were telling us about is, is really, it's really there. But, um, but there's definitely power to be, I'm sorry, there's definitely potential to be a very powerful and influential figure in the public sphere um, that yeah. creates a lot of structure and brings a lot of transformation to whatever industry it is that you work in, um, or just transformation again to the world in, in general, like you said, like making the world a better place, um, but doing it through business or through investing or, or operating as, you know, a very, um, authoritative and organized, meticulous, detail oriented, um, figure. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you think? Did you like your reading? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's definitely pretty good. I mean, I would say that like, uh, yeah, I, I've definitely learned my lesson. I would say that like, at least for the younger generation, if anyone's uh, listening, like be very careful with like what you, uh, are putting it, how you put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And if you are, um, if you do become successful, you'll find out that a lot of your friends that you thought were your friends are not your friends. And b business changes people and money changes people. Even if they, that's your best friend, I've had my own best friends backstab me, put things in writing if you're going to do business with somebody. Because it might not even be like you guys are necessarily trying to like screw each other over. Mm -hmm. You might have forgotten a conversation you had with someone a few months ago. Nobody's perfect. I forget shit. I mean, I'm sure both of you forget sometimes. It might be an honest mistake where you forgot you made that promise. And then all of a sudden, you and your best friend are fighting over, I said this, and I know you didn't. You never said that. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's World War II. Because you usually have the biggest fights with the people you're closest with. You don't have big... You don't have fights with your enemies. You have fights with your friends. Wow. Well, part two coming up. Some more <laughs> stories that you could share with us next time. I appreciate you guys uh, bringing me on and, and um, hopefully uh, 
not just the two of you, but other people listening in, uh, learn, uh, get something out of this, or at least uh, learn what not to do. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think we learned a lot from you. Thank you so much, Heath, and for you guys watching that want to be startup entrepreneurs, investors later in life, um, definitely keep tuning into the Green Tea. Well, thank you guys thank so you, much ladies. for watching. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yep. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.